Straight Talk Live. Off. Should we get started? Let's go. Let's let's crack on. It's okay. a beautiful day in London. It's also a, a beautiful day here in San Diego. They buy things to impress people that they don't even like. You do have to change the culture. The culture of the organization is the most important. It's as if reality is splintering into multiple shards. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I'm one of your co-hosts, Rick Snyder. I'm the CEO of Invisible Edge and the author of Decisive Intuition and one of the proud co-founders of this amazing show that's a not-for-profit where we explore the realms of human, digital, and social transformation. And once again, it was really birthed in this concept right when COVID hit in early March of 2020. Af and I were not impressed by the conversations that were happening around the world and how underprepared we were in so many sectors of our lives and the important conversations that needed to be happening. So that's why we created this platform to invite amazing experts around the world to discuss the most pertinent problems and <clears throat> issues that we're facing today. So before I go any further, I want to introduce our amazing co-host. You all know him and love him very much. Af Moholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you very much, Rick. Uh, it's nice to feel loved. I uh, appreciate that. <laughs> we, have, uh, we have a terrific kick-ass episode today with a very special guest, and we'll talk more about him um, shortly. So I'm, of course, uh, the co-creator of this wonderful not-for-profit and uh, involved in a whole bunch of philanthropic work myself, and also uh, a tech founder, a tech entrepreneur, with uh, one of my recent ventures, Growth Enabler. Um, Straight Talk Life has had a profound effect on our lives over the last 17 months, as you all know. It continues to um, reshape the way we think about um, the strategies of life, the way we think about uh, digital, the way we think about um, human, uh, the, the aspects of personal development and leadership and the way we think about um, the climate and the environment. We tend to call that human, digital, and social. And uh, today's guest is going to probably encompass all aspects of that to a large extent, and um, is going to open our minds to uh, some of the things that we often think but don't really discuss in real time. So I'm gonna throw the, uh, or kick the football over to you, uh, Rick, and um, off you go. I know the screen's a little bit slow. If I'm, uh, I don't know if, if the um, if the Zoom call today is a little bit odd, but uh, I'm I'm in slow mode, slow motion mode. So I'll try and sign back in. If it's my issue, if it's a it's a Zoom issue, then let me know. But I'm going to throw the, the the ball out. Yeah, thank you, Af. And I think we probably have that same echo problem, so we'll just take turns speaking here. So I want to welcome our amazing guest, Peter Cadens, to our show today. And Peter is um, chairman of the Cadence Family Foundation. He's also the founder and the former CEO of Green Thumb Industries. Um, he's been uh, very passionate and interested in the cannabis realm and sector. He's been a board director of marijuana policy and cannabis trade. He's also a restaurant owner. He's an incredible entrepreneur, speaker, uh, inspirer, and very authentic human being. You're about to see that in a moment here. And also very passionate about social justice and how to give back to communities in a very real practical way and what that looks like and how to use your privilege and how to use your position and power for 
helping others. And so that's really the core of what we're going to get to today. So uh, first of all, Peter, Pete, welcome to Straight Talk Live. Thank you so much, Rick and Ed, for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So Pete, you have such a fascinating background. Obviously, cannabis is such an intriguing uh, sector and how it's gained legality in the States and many other places around the world. And it's such a hot topic around all the pro medicinal properties and uh, textile you know, abilities and the, all the things that can be harvested from this hemp plant. And I'm just curious, how did you get involved in that world? How did that start for you? Well, I've always had a, um, uh, a concern about the damage done by the war on drugs. Hmm. I was the chairman of the board of the largest homeless aid agency here in Chicago for, uh, for 12 years. And I would say the vast majority of the people I work with and the families were, were part of this tsunami of you know, poverty that was caused by mostly drug-related drug arrests and incarceration. Mm -hmm. But they were all good people. They were all smart and capable. They all had certain talents. And it, it, effectively, they were serving a life sentence. Even though their sentence may have only been two or three years in jail, because of that gap on their resume and that felony, um, you know, employers were not, weren't, weren't able to or willing to intervene and employ them. And so they were paying basically a life sentence. And they were homeless. Mm. Um, and uh, I just didn't feel that was right. I, that really concerned me. So I always had this bias around uh, the damage done by the war on drugs. And then in 2013, a friend of mine called me. He's now the, the, the CEO of Green Thumb Industries named, named Ben Kovler. He asked me what I thought about marijuana. I told him, of course, I loved it. And he said, no, not the, uh, not the plant, the business. Mm. I said, you don't really know anything about the business. But I had been running a large company at the time in the solar energy space, and he got me intrigued. He actually said one thing to me, and I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, which was pretty interesting. He said, if you can brand something and charge a premium, something as mundane and benign and abundant as this, water, slap a label on it and charge a $4 premium, imagine what you could do, the branding possibilities with something that, that's got real therapeutic application and thousands of strains or, or cultivars or permutations. Um, and so that really caught my attention from a business perspective. And then um, shortly thereafter, I, I joined that. Mm. Got it. And so there's the personal interest, but then really seeing the business opportunities. But also it sounds like there's a social, there's a, that social thread that was always there where you saw people being unfairly incarcerated or treated in a certain way. And you saw a way that you could help change that. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the people who have uh, spastic disorders like MS or Parkinson's or AIDS or certain cancers or a whole suite of other things are using this plant. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it's, it's helping them in many ways and, and without the dangerous side effects of some of these opiates and other narcotics. Mm -hmm. And yet people are going to jail for it, for the same medicinal plant. By the way, cannabis is the oldest known form of medicine through archaeological digs that date back 13,000 years in the Far East. We know that you know, our, our ancestors, many, many, years, many generations back, were using cannabis as a medicine even then. And so um, to incarcerate people for the very same plant that was helping AIDS patients put weight back on, mm. or, or, or MS patients or Parkinson's patients you know, uh, 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 alleviate their spastic issues, um, didn't make sense to me and, uh, and didn't seem fair. So um, I decided I was gonna be a cause warrior and this was my cause. And it also, again, it intersected well with my, my entrepreneurial spirit. So it was a perfect uh, time and moment to take risks. Now I will say, 
there was a lot of pioneers in the space that got in much earlier than I did, 2007, 2008, 2009. Um, and you know what we saw with them? We saw that those people, for the most part, were not prepared to scale a business. Mm -hmm. And that, from a business mind, was an opportunity for me. I saw these people that were doing very well in California and Colorado, but they didn't really understand the business basics. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, there was also an opening where the competition at the time was weak. It's much, much better now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Pete, um, if I may, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Cool. I just I wanted to make sure there's no no lag. So when we spoke um, a few weeks back, it was a fantastic conversation. Quite a few things captured my attention and have got me thinking about um, the world in a slightly different way. And um, being really open with you, one of the most important things that you shared, and by the way, that was the first time we ever met and introduced through someone we both know really well, we all know really well. And you said something to me that, that uh, has stayed with me. In fact, I've probably repeated it a few times to um, quite a few people. And the sentiment around what you said was um, broken down in the following ways. You talked about, which, which I'd love you to unpack now for the audience. The first part of it was your journey and your personal background. You know, you come from a humble uh, background, you worked hard, you've obviously built a lot of um, wealth for yourself, financial wealth, but also mental wealth, family wealth, spiritual wealth over time as well, different types of wealth. You have e experienced a bit of an awakening where you had a sense of guilt about what you have done in the past but also an important sense of responsibility that you're now undertaking in this next phase of your life, um, which I'd like you to unpack as part of your, your story and your journey, which is to do with enabling others to be more complete, more uh, empowered, and not the trite sort of bullshit way of, you know, saying, well, I'm really rich and wealthy now, so let me try and help those who are poor. Um, and we'll talk more about the fallacy of that, because I know you have something to say, and we certainly have the questions for you around that as well. We'll come to that later. But please start with a little bit about your journey because it's very important for people to understand you. Um, they don't really know you. So who are you? Yeah, yeah great. Um, so I'm a middle-class kid from Toledo, Ohio. Uh, my father was a teacher, a professor at a, a kind of a third-tier university, the University of Toledo in Ohio. My mother was a 16-year elected official, elected for four terms. Um, so my parents were both uh, civil servants, effectively. Um, and uh, while they didn't make a lot of money, they were well-educated. Um, and we lived in a middle-class white community with a very high-quality public school. Um, and I had so many, while my, my parents weren't rich, and they didn't have a bunch of money I was going to inherit or money that it was going to help me start a business one day, they gave me the gift of opportunity. They gave me the gift of knowledge. They gave me the gift of direction and pointing me in the right direction. When I was eight years old, I got an amazing gift. And I always thank my parents are in their mid eighties now. And I always thank them for this gift, which was um, my dad had a uh, sabbatical um, and we went to 20 plus countries um, over the course of a year. My parents pulled me out of uh, second grade and mm. um, it, my, my dad was studying economic development in development countries. So I was in red China. Mm. I was in Calcutta. 
I was in uh, the Klong Canals in Bangkok. I mean, I was in, at the time, some very not contemporary places. Now, these places have been contemporized over the years, but I can promise you that in 1985, when I was floating down the Klong Canals in Bangkok, it was not contemporary. It was anything but. It was utter squalor. And for a little kid from a middle-class community in Ohio to see that, to open up my aperture and my lens to suffering and poverty, and frankly, it was interesting because these kids were in utter poverty. These, these Thai kids who were swimming in the canals that I was floating down in a canoe, they just didn't know it. I knew it. It was the first time I became aware of what poverty really was. And so that started my journey and my anthropological fascination with poverty. And the notion that um, I, I acquired this gift of the question, why? Which is to say, um, you know, if you see someone impoverished, you know, uh, you know, like I always say, uh, I see a homeless man on a street in, in, in freezing cold in Chicago. You know, it's easy to give him a dollar. You know, I do that as much as I can. I know a lot of people do. It's much harder, especially in your busy day with your phones and all of your other connectivity, to walk by after giving him a dollar and ask yourself, why is that person on the freezing concrete and why am I here? And that deep kind of search for that anthropological bifurcation of humanity, like, why is he there and why am I here has been a real soul searching effort for me for the rest of my life. Mm. Uh, and that really guides my entire journey. So um, th this has been uh, this has been an important part of my journey. And Af, I think one of the things you're getting to and then I'll and I'll get off my soapbox here is um, part of my journey coming where I came from and then becoming successful and becoming wealthy. I always asked myself, you know, like, again, why were these people here and why was I there? And I think the conclusion I have come to. Years, year, years later and having created real wealth, you know, for myself and my family is I won in life because other people lost. Mm -hmm. And I hate to make it seem so unbalanced, like why can't I win and other people win too? But that's just not reality. I won in life because other people lost. In other words, if all of those kids of the underserved black schools in downtown Toledo would have the same family infrastructure and support and access that I had had, would I have gotten into the colleges and universities I got into? Probably not, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not what transpired. And so because they were treated inequitably, and I got certain preferences and advantages, I won. Um, and that guides my philanthropy today, because I do have a, um, a deep sense of guilt about that. Mm. Let's, let's talk more about that for a second. So <clears throat> you built a, bu a bunch of businesses, you've executed your role as a leader, in whatever capacity, and you gained some rewards on the back of it. Let's call them financial rewards for now. That gave you a sense of comfort, has given you a sense of comfort in life, maybe for your generation or a few generations down the line. And that's wonderful, remarkable. There are many people in the world like that. Um, but a lot of those people who we've seen in different parts of the world, I mean, I live in London, the UK, you know, you're in one part of the states in Chicago, um, Rick's in, in, in California, in, in fact, in San Diego uh, specifically. And our guests are all from all over the world, right? And, and of course, the audience listening in from different channels. Uh, it's, not, it's not common practice for someone who's made it to um, authentically have a sense of guilt and responsibility. That's what you used with me when you spoke to me and you said, it's not, I'm not giving anyone a gift here, so don't think it's, I'm just trying to be generous. Uh, it's my duty and my responsibility to do this. 
So tell us a little bit about, I, I get your background and that's, that must have a massive role to play in, as you call it, your aperture, your way of thinking, your psyche. Absolutely, without question. And it makes me think as a parent, I've got to, and I always say this, I've got to send my kids when they're at the right age somewhere in the world to experience that because otherwise they'll, they, they, they're going to think everything is about abundance and that causes a different set of problems as we see in the West today, right? And we're almost trying to go back to say, hey, we've got to balance ourselves off. So it's great you've had that. But what else, what else has triggered that in you? I mean, I don't, is, it, is, it, is it just that where, you know, the fact that you were exposed to people who didn't have what you had? What, what is it? I mean, what, I mean, you, I mean it, it's so, it's such bullshit, frankly, that here I am, this rich, wealthy white guy who created all this wealth on the backs of black and brown people who did the same thing I did, maybe in a slightly less sophisticated way, but they did the same thing I did out of their basements and garages for generations before me. And they ended up incarcerated and with lives destroyed. And I ended up in this beautiful home living on the lake with millions of dollars. Go figure. How, how, how can I rationalize that? How can I sleep well at night knowing that that's the case? I did what I did on the backs of black and, black, black and brown people and they suffered. And so we use that word reparation, people get uncomfortable with that word. And I, I'm not going to use it here other than to say, I'm trying to repair the damage done um, with the knowledge of knowing that if it weren't for them and the foundation they created for me to be, you know, I came along just as the stigma started to become erased on cannabis and just as start, just as the legal, legal, legalization wave started here in the US. And I just timed it perfectly. And, and I always say to people too, like, I even have an older brother who, who doesn't like when I, when I say this, you like, if I talk to an entrepreneur and I say, tell me the two or three reasons why you're so successful. And if they don't throw out the word luck in one of those two or three reasons, I just immediately say, you're a bullshit artist. You're, you're full of hubris. How can you say that luck doesn't play a role? I mean, look, there's lots of entrepreneurs that work hard. There's lots of entrepreneurs that have great ideas and great visions. There's lots of entrepreneurs, and some of them are down on the south side of Chicago, and they're living in poverty. They work tirelessly, but they don't make it to where I've made it. And so I have to believe, and it would be excessive hubris if I didn't believe this, that I, had, I ex experienced extraordinarily good fortune in my life. Um, and, uh, and in order to pay that back, my responsibility is to pay that back so that other people have a better chance to try and find that good fortune that I have found. Um, mm -hmm. that's the way I, that's the way I pay, you know, I, after, as we talked last time, people always talk about this notion of pay it forward. Mm -hmm. I'm a bigger believer in the notion of pay it backward. What are the things and the communities and the people in my life that gave me the leg up that others didn't have? And now I got to pay it backwards so that others have that same chance. That's the way I view the world. Could you share, Pete, some of the ways that you do that? So what are some of the actual ways that you are paying it back? What does that look like in communities? Let me hear some of those pieces. Yeah. So uh, when I was a, a CEO of Green Thumb Industries, which is now, by the way, a, a $7 billion you know, market cap business. I mean, it's wow. the second largest cannabis company in the world. And wow. uh, my partners and, and my team there have done such an incredible job of carrying that torch since I left and uh, left the board in 2019. But, um, uh, you know, we did a lot of things at Green Thumb Industries where we would, you know, I, I had this mandate where we say, all right, if we have a big cultivation facility, you know, 50 to 100 jobs or more, we're going to locate that facility in a city 
that has experienced the damage of the war on drugs. So I don't want to go into some wealthy, mostly white city, um, you know, that, uh, that is just taking advantage of this novel legalization effort. I want to go in a city that's got more than 20% below the poverty line, more than 30% minority density, uh, and is experiencing some of the highest unemployment in the state. Those are the same people whose lives were, 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 you know, were kind of misaligned and, 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 and recreated under this fallacy of the war on drugs. Those are the same people we want to try and employ. So we also did uh, hosted expungement and expungement fairs to help people expunge their career, their criminal histories, to help them get to the point where they can apply for jobs with us. Um, that's a lot of what I did. I said as chairman of the board and uh, of the largest homeless aid agency in Chicago for many years. I've served on many boards in the space. But I think probably most notably is I have now come to the conclusion that um, you cannot solve, we cannot solve multi-dimensional intractable issues with one-dimensional solutions. And I think as a society, we try and we try and do that a lot. You know, we have a gun violence issue here in Chicago. And so uh, someone throws out the notion that we'll have a million dollar reward for someone who turns in, you know, X number of guns. That's a one dimensional solution for a multi-dimensional issue. Mm -hmm. So what I'm focused on now is that intersection between poverty um, and education. Mm -hmm. I believe it's that nexus mm -hmm. that that recreates our cities and changes societies forever. And so a good example, um, Rick, of what I did is I went back to my hometown, mm -hmm. which is a very underserved hometown, only about 17 percent of the citizens of Toledo, Ohio have four-year college degrees. So it's a very undereducated community, frankly. But I went to this school that was four miles down the road from where I grew up, my good quality white middle-class school. I went to an all-black high school, all underserved, all below the poverty line. And I, on January 29th of 2020, so right before the pandemic, I told them uh, that I was all the senior class, and now we've done it for another class as well. Um, that I was going to pay for their tuition, room and board, books and fees, lock, stock and barrel for them to go to college or trade school or two year. I didn't want to mainstream kids into mm -hmm. going to a college if it wasn't right for them. Mm -hmm. So any accredited trade or certification program or four year or two year school, they could go to totally for free. In addition, because poverty is a go back to that one dimensional versus multidimensional issue, because poverty is a multi-generational issue. Mm -hmm. You don't solve poverty with one generational solutions. So I took it a step further and I said, not only am I going to pay, you know, Mr. Um, uh, Mr. Senior, you know, Mr. Big Shot, big man on campus, senior, Miss Big Shot on campus, uh, you know, senior uh, girl, not only am I going to pay for your college, I'm going to pay for your parent or legal guardian to, to go to college as well. So two generations, because I believe that's how we solve or start to solve this issue. So uh, that's how I really started to focus on this. And that type of approach is really what I'm spending a lot of my foundation dollars on going forward. Wow. That's remarkable. Yeah. I can imagine what, what was the reception like when you went to the school and they heard you probably your story, I'm sure you did a presentation of some sort and, and what was the reception like? You know um, you know, you, my wife reminds me that I have to set aside my, my, my wedding day and the birth of my three children. So I'm going to set those things aside. Okay. <laughs> but I would say other than those three uh, seminal moments in my life, this was the best day of my life the most fulfilling day of my life. It gives me goosebumps still right now. I mean, and it makes me, brings me to tears. Um, that euphoria in that room, the notion, and, and, and the, these, these kids and these families came up to me afterwards and they said this to me, the notion that a white man with riches believed in black children in the urban corridors in a beaten up city like Toledo, Ohio, 
just that notion, set aside the financial piece, the notion that I believed in them and wanted to invest in them changed their paradigm, changed their cultural narrative, changed everything for them. And so it was, it was true euphoria, like I've never experienced in my life. It was, again, outside of those three or four major family moments, the happiest moment of my life, because it was the <clears> moment where I realized, you know, so I sold the company to a Fortune 500 company. I took a company public. I achieved all this stuff from a career and compensatory perspective, but I didn't feel like I had reached the mountaintop until that day, January 29th of 2020. That was the moment when I knew that my success was more than just success and it now translated to significance. So um, for me, it was euphoric. And for them, they freaked out. It was awesome. And it's all a video, by the way. If you go to CBS News, there's a bunch of videos on it. That's amazing. What about, um, what about this concept of, um, I think you talked about, you know, you give more surprise to prize, you give more and you start getting more. Uh, and get, guessing more means all sorts of guessing, all sorts of gain, fulfillment, contentment, uh, emotions. I can see that you're emotional right now when you're describing that moment. In fact, we, I, I was getting some goosebumps as, as I'm a visual kind of person and so is Rick. We start visualizing things where we're not there, but we're imagining we're there, superimposing ourselves on that scene at that time. And what an amazing feeling. And it makes you question everything, right? It makes you start sort of, all the noise gets cleared and you start to realize actually these simple things in life can be so empowering, so complete, um, make you feel so, um, uh, you know, in touch with your role on this planet um, because we seek all sorts of things to try and do that, you know, religion, faith, you know, spiritual guru, blah, 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 the list goes on. That is a very powerful story. Let me touch on a dark side of this, which is unfortunately, uh, and these are your words, I'm paraphrasing, not everyone around you, maybe your proximity, maybe metaphorically speaking, does what you're doing. I don't quite understand why. Um, and let me, let me put something out there. Someone I know and respect quite well, he's an entrepreneur too, put up a post, uh, put up a statement on Facebook. Um, it's not misinformation, it's just his views. So put up a statement saying, Jeff Bezos spent X billion going to space for 11 minutes. I wonder what else he could have done with that money. We talked about the golf course. I'm not having a go at golfers because I've many friends and family members who are great golfers, but you, both you and I connect on that really, I'd rather spend my time doing something else. I think it's a great game, but it's not for me. Why don't, why don't every, um, why, why doesn't everyone who is as accomplished financially get it? And talk us through if you're comfortable and you know, you can be as straight talking as well. You can, you can, Throw F-bombs if you really want, if you feel passionate about it, no problems. Um, say what the fuck you want, really. Um, <laughs> make you feel comfortable. Um, let's, let's just call a spade a spade, as they say in the UK. Why aren't people around you doing the same as you? Pete? Yeah, it's an it's a, it's a important question. It's a question we all need to get to the bottom of. I don't have a silver bullet answer, but I have some hypotheses. Um, my... my, 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 my probably most uh, dominant theory on this issue is very simple and it makes sense. And I've been in that chair so I can, I can see why someone would feel this way or act this way. Martin Luther King in his letter from Birmingham city jail talked about how um, people in groups with privilege 
have a long and sordid history of working very hard to protect their privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To me, whether consciously or subconsciously, that is why most white wealthy people, and I say white, um, and I mean it because I'm straight talking here, um, they're working to protect their privilege. They're working to protect their privilege for their kids. They're working to protect their privilege for the broader family. Um, you know, I, I'm not a believer in creating multi-generational wealth because I'm not trying to protect my kids' privilege. Mm. Uh, I think the reason I am here today is because I didn't have the type of privilege that many kids of wealth have. I had to work for everything. I'm not, not, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who like I bootstrapped it. No, I had a great support system. My parents got me to college and all the other stuff. I wasn't like, I didn't have the hardcore situation many people have when they start with nothing. I had a good foundation, but you know, sometimes it's, it's a disadvantage to be saddled with wealth. And I think Warren Buffett has talked about the fact that that's the worst gift he could give his kids, you know, his, his money. Um, and so I think all of us are so busy trying to protect our privilege. We want our kids to go to the best schools. And so if we lift someone else up from an inner city, who's a different race who could compete one for one with my kid at, you know, some prestigious high school in the North shore of Chicago, um, is my kid then going to get into Dartmouth? Maybe not. And so I'm not, it's not that I'm racist overtly. It's just that I want better for my kid. And so because of that, I'm not going to help the kid down in the South side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. That to me is the core issue. And it's an, it's an unspoken thing, but it's reality. This is the way we all act. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to understand what we have to do to solve this. You know, we have a problem in this country now in that we can never come to a common set of understandings because we can't even agree to a common set of facts, right? And so if everyone would agree to this fact that most rich people work to protect their family's privilege, and if they at least understood that and could intuitively kind of grapple with that and and kind of be aware of when those moments of protecting their privilege happened and try and address it a little bit, um, maybe the world would be a little bit more of a fair place. Um, but I think that's the core issue here. Af, and it, it's, it pains me to say that, but I, I see it in my neighbors. I see it in my friends. Um, and, um, and sometimes to be honest with you, I see it in myself. Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me, um, just in terms of philanthropy, um, it's just really clear to me, Pete, how, uh, I don't want, I don't like to use the word pure, but you have a really just honest and earnest, uh, connection to what you're to your giving and to the, your audience you're serving and the people you're serving. It's just super clear. And I imagine as you look around, you see a lot of other philanthropists who, you know, it's pretty, there's a dark side of philanthropy where, you know, it's just about taxes. Uh, it's just about, um, you know, looking good for PR or feeling good from your ego and that kind of place. What are you noticing when you look out at the landscape and do you ever bump into those colleagues or, you know, uh, people who have attained as much or more than you, and do you ever have those awkward conversations or what happens behind the scenes? Yeah, I have those awkward conversations all the time. And I'm currently in the middle of a major fundraiser for an educational initiative I'm launching and um, having these conversations right now. And, you know, what I'm having to do is I'm having to be a little bit of a chameleon in my messaging, mm-hmm. you know, so I know pretty quickly who the people are who only care about their taxes. Mm-hmm. And I have a message for them, too. Mm-hmm. And my message for them is it's easy to blame the governor. And say it's the governor's fault or the legislature's fault. Frankly, in the state of Illinois, you know, the financial harm done here that's causing our high taxes is, you know, decades in the making. So it's not the current governor's fault in any way. But people, he's the easy person to blame. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, is a very simple formula. And so I 
educate these people if they don't know on the formula. The formula is this. If you want to know why Amazon didn't put their second headquarters here, if you want to know why Peloton didn't put their brand new 3 million square foot manufacturing facility here, if you want to know all this other stuff, what, why we're struggling from an economic development perspective here in Chicago, I'll tell you exactly why. It's because we're an underskilled and undereducated workforce. And so if what you care about is your tax rate, that's all you care about. That's fine. Ideologically, we don't agree. But if that's what you care about and you want to change that, you should start investing in the education of families in the South and West disinvested sides of Chicago, because when they get more skilled and when they get more educated, you level the playing field, you create a wider base of taxpayers who can have, and, and then the rich people at the top pay less tax. That's just kind of how the formula works. Pretty simple. So what I've tried to do in these meetings, yeah, there are a lot of people. I'm a liberal. I'm a progressive guy. There's a lot of people I meet with who have become very wealthy, and now they pay an abundance of taxes, as do I. But that's a core issue for them. And so I've learned as a, as a fellow of the Aspen Institute, uh, some of your prior uh, folks you've interviewed, you know, I've learned how to curate a narrative and a message to people who don't ideologically agree with me. Mm-hmm. And I think in order for us to come to this common set of understandings, we have to speak to people who, who look at facts and look at things differently than we do. And so I don't disagree with people. I'm more of a yes and person than a mm-hmm. yes what person these days. Um, and frankly, I find like we get more done, uh, by, by hearing people listening to their concerns and being a chameleon, but yeah, it's frustrating. I mean, I, I don't agree with these greedy, greedy people on the way they see the world. And it pisses me off when I go to someone's house and they got this big, beautiful mansion and 37 cars in the basement dating back to 1942. And, uh, and I pose the question so what board are you on? What charities do you give to? Eh, I'm too busy right now. I'm not really engaged in charitable work. Really? Right? I mean, are you fucking serious? Is that, is, that, is that what you want to be known for when you die? You want to be known for your fucking car collection? I mean, I don't say it exactly in those terms, but I'm on Straight Talk, straight talk Live, so I can say it. That gets under my skin. That agitates me. And I, and I, I try and talk to people about it because I think it's important that people like me and like all of us who are philanthropically inclined, we should be calling out the people who are not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Brilliant. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, you, you're getting us charged up. Let's talk a little bit about uh, tomorrow, the future. And, um, you know, you're, you're starting this campaign. And let's specifically talk about this uh, new fundraiser, because I found that really fascinating. Tell us more about what it is that you're doing now and what's that sort of big difference that you want to make, how you're going to yeah. educate that as well. Right, right. All right, so I'm not going to tell everybody the whole picture because the formal announcement isn't until early September. But, um, but I'm going to give, I'm gonna give a, 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 an overview um, and the overview is this, what I did in Toledo is helping about 300 families. And that's beautiful because frankly, I, I got like, I, I started with three children and now I have 300, um, mm-hmm. which is, which is amazing. Um, in fact, I just moved one of my, uh, students from, um, from Toledo. He, he couldn't make it in school. Uh, last year he got COVID during his freshman year. And then his brother got shot, unfortunately, in a drug trade, drug trade gone wrong. And, Lots was going on in his life. He couldn't get through school. And so I moved him here to northern suburbs of Chicago. I've got him an apartment. I got him a car and he's coming to work for me and I'm watching over him. So I really have inherited many of these children, which is awesome. Um, But I decided what I did in Ohio with 300 people was just my appetizer. If I, I'm 43 years old, I got lots of years to live. I got real capital. I got real intellect. There's real possibility. If I don't take what I learned there, and there is a lot of learnings there, by the way, um, and mistakes and foibles. If I don't take all of that 
and apply it to a much more scalable solution here in my home community, um, you know, that would be a big mistake. I have a moral imperative to do that. So what I'm doing here in Chicago is I'm launching a, a much, much larger initiative. I'm not going to give the exact terms, but, but many, many, many more dollars than uh, the dollars I'm raising and deploying in Toledo. Um, I've hired a world-class CEO. I'm not going to say who that is yet, but someone that people on this, on this podcast know, a very famous uh, Black woman, uh, an amazing leader. We've built a world-class board, and we are going to deploy enough capital so that uh, roughly 70,000 families, Chicago families, are impacted by quality access to education, the same exact education that my children in the North suburban white rich communities would, would access. Um, to me, that changes the cultural paradigm. And there's an analog here that I wanna talk about really quickly because I, I keep using the word cultural paradigm or cultural narrative, that's important. There's a, there's a program in Kalamazoo, Michigan, a city of about $80,000, called 80,000 people called the Kalamazoo Promise. And I was talking to a, a woman there who was a teacher. Of, uh, she taught seniors in English literature. And she said, Pete, 10 years ago, before we started funding college tuition for all the public school, high school graduates in Kalamazoo, um, to, you know, any, the, if you graduate from a public high school in Kalamazoo, there are three of them, you can go to college for free. That's the deal in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And she said 10 years ago, before this started, in March of the senior year, I used to sit, or, sit the classroom down and, you know, 25 seniors and used to say, so, so what are you going to do next year? And now, today, I look at these kids and I say, so where are you going to college next year? And just the tweak of those four words from that one sentence 10 years ago to this new sentence today has had massive cascading and cultural impacts in that entire community. By the way, poverty in 2010 in Kalamazoo, Michigan, city of 90,000 people, 39% below the poverty line. Today, 21%. I mean, that just doesn't happen by accident, right? That happens because we're driving people into the city who want to take advantage of opportunities for free education, and they actually are taking advantage of it and coming back to this, this small city with a degree in tow, uh, and they're reinventing this community. That's what we have the capacity to do in Chicago. That's what I'm working on and super excited. My, my, my organization is called HOPE, which stands for Helping Our Population Educate, and our tagline is Higher Education for Every Generation. Higher education. I want to ask you about this. Um, I was a school-based therapist at one point in the worst neighborhood in San Francisco, which is known for the most violent crime and gangs and that kind of thing called Bayview Hunters Point. And um, it was all black and Samoan population. And I'm the white guy therapist trying to get their world and help them as best I can. And one of the things that really uh, I didn't really realize until I was on the ground was the paradigm around people who've been in the projects for like four generations and they didn't have any thought of anything different. They had no other conception that there could be a different future. They assumed, oh, this is, I'm going to have kids here and this is my life. And it was just amazing to me that that was the mindset. And I didn't appreciate that until I was up close with that. And so one thing that I'm getting is how you're really helping change people's paradigms and their mm -hmm. mindsets and what's possible in a real way. And one of my questions is when you are helping people get access to schools, I'm just curious about like, is the money more going towards, you know, better schools and giving them access that way? Are you actually enhancing the education by helping with teacher training and different new resources in the classroom? Like what are the ways that actually, that you can actually boost and enhance education? Yeah. All of the above, you know, Rick, it's such an important question. Just giving kids money 
to go to school is not even close to enough, especially first generation underserved kids. It's a wraparound system. They need trauma-informed education. They need mentorship. They need financial literacy. They need life skills training. They need college preparatory uh, training, especially if they're first generation and their parents can't educate them on what it's like to go to college. Um, Mm -hmm. So we provide all of that in the run-up to college as part of our offering. Um, We partner with agencies, nonprofit agencies in Chicago and in Toledo who've been doing this for generations uh, and they do great work. They're probably a little bit underfunded. They're smaller nonprofits, but they do great work. And we're funding those nonprofits to bring all of those skills to these kids. So when they get on campus, you know, look, it's a pretty damn daunting thing. When you walk onto a campus as a first generation black uh, man or woman and everyone else is white and everyone else's parents went to college, you immediately from day one feel well out of your comfort zone. So we have to prepare these kids for that. And then what we do is this, we say to the colleges and universities, we know you want our students. They all want urban, diverse, underserved students mm-hmm. who have the capacity to get into these colleges and, and get education. That's a, that's a badge of honor for these universities. But guess what? You don't get these kids fully paid for unless you pay your, pay your dues too, Mr. You know, university, Mr. and Mrs. University President. And so we demand that our college or university or trade school partners have a retention program in place. Mm. Because you know what? It is not enough. We have this historical thing here in the U.S. where it's like we have these things called set-asides. We're like, we set aside licenses or contracts or opportunities for black and brown people. And then we just like magically expect them to succeed mm-hmm. because we give them some. That right. doesn't fucking work. It right. never has and it never will. So we're not just going to send these kids to college as an optical illusion, as a mirage of sorts and say, here, mm-hmm. we paid for you. Yep. Good luck. Exactly. No, the school has to deploy a retention program. It has to yeah. be formalized. And your job is, Mr. University or Mrs. University President, get this kid to get a piece of paper at the end with his name on it. Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, you're not going to be our university partner for long, getting full mm-hmm. boat tuition paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're very demanding and upfront on that piece. And so that's how we're doing it, Rick. Um, we realize that it's way more than just money that's going to get these kids to persist through their education. Mm-hmm. Just going back to that example, you got me thinking, you know, when you talked about that scenario where you've got the, the young person, the black, let's say the black person who's come in and they're daunted by the other people in, in, in the college or the university who might be white, for example. Talk me through um, your view on those people. So here we're talking about the individual who needs the support, who will make, make waves at some point. Um, let's talk about the people and their attitudes on the other side. Uh, the, the community at large, because of course, I, you know, I'm the black guy, I feel uncomfortable, you're the other chap on the other side. What's your attitude like? How is that changing? How, we help, how am I helping you to change your mindset? Because you come with preconceived ideas, biases, unconscious bias, the whole shebang. Yeah, I know, it's a good question. And, uh, and, and truth be told, that is an issue. And, and I do think that there is a movement afoot, I think, especially here in the US, post-George Floyd, um, there is a movement afoot. Some of it's superficial and bullshit, to be honest with you. But, but some of it, I think, is genuine to actually educate the white population on, A, the lived experience of a black or brown person in this community, B, um, the policing experience of a black or brown person, what it's mean to be policed as a black or brown person in the U.S. and the, and the damage that, that some of the criminal justice system and policing efforts have done to these people and their psyches. I, so I think there's a slightly better understanding today than there was a year and a half ago, um, you know, which is good. And I think that applies to, you know, the, this younger generation, the, even the, 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 the second generation, third generation wealthy white kids, I think, have a slightly better cause orientation than you and I did growing up. Um, so I think that's helpful. But to answer your question, it's a great point. And to date, 
We haven't put any formal plans in place to educate the, the ecosystem about how to welcome these black and brown kids and, 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 and how to dismiss those preconceived notions or biases about them. Um, but that's an important element of this we need to consider. And so you just gave me a good idea and something to talk to my new CEO about. So thank you. Yeah, no, pleasure. Yeah, because I think the two-way communication is extremely important um, because no matter how much you empower that individual, the social fabric um, needs to be responsive and conducive. Otherwise, uh, they will sort of retreat mentally. And that causes a whole heap of other problems related to mental well-being and depression and stress, which is, you know, thanks for giving me everything you did, but um, the, the society is not accepting my greatness. And so that is also disenchanting and disheartening for you because you did everything you could to that point. Um, but I guess that's the next challenge. And hopefully with this new project you're running, that should be on the agenda as much as helping the person who needs that assistance. Absolutely. I do have a, I do have one thing that I forgot about that I'm doing. So Absolutely. We, I, do have, I do have one thing that I forgot about that I'm doing. This is, uh, yeah. Sorry, carry on. No, there was a delay. Carry on. Yeah, um, that my, my high school in Ohio, my all white high end, you know, high school, uh, I, I've partnered 20 kids in that high school up with 20 kids from the underserved black high school in Toledo that I'm providing scholarships for. And these kids now come together once a month as a community to talk about um, intractable issues in their community, um, to talk about their existence and their life, uh, to talk about what life is like in their respective worlds. They've gone camping together, they've gone to movies together. And so I am starting to do that. I wasn't you know, necessarily thinking about that when you ask the question, but there is some movement afoot to bring these communities together so at least they can understand one another better. So I am doing a little bit of that, but not at scale. And so I need to work on that. Ath, looks like you're not coming through audio wise. So, um, you know, I'll ask, I'll ask a question while Ath is figuring out the audio is, um, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up for me is, um, you know, you've mentioned a few times that a lot of your fuel for better or for worse has been guilt. And it's come through your your uh, your position from the past, your experiences from the past, and wanting to pay it backward as well as forward. And it just had me think about um, there's like a relationship between guilt, but there's also purpose, like, like being in your purpose, right? And really being aligned in that place. Um, and sometimes when I'm coming from guilt, I sometimes also make decisions that are not in best alignment for me. Uh, because I might feel I might overdo something or I might overgive something, but it might not be totally true to me or authentic because I'm coming from that place. So I wonder, how do you work with that? Um, how aware of you of that, are, are you of that where you're really tapping into your fuel source and asking yourself that question? Hey, is this like, am I, am I overdoing something over here out of that place? Or is it totally in alignment with my purpose? How do you check in with that out of curiosity? Yeah. That's such an awesome question, Rick. I mean, it really is. And it gets to the core of some of the challenges I've had over the past few years. You know, I, no one's going to, you know, cry for me uh, about being wealthy and some of the challenges of being wealthy. But they're just like being poor. There are challenges with being wealthy too, believe it or not. Um, and coming into the vast amount of wealth I came into basically overnight, I didn't know how to be wealthy. Um, and, um, and I didn't know that I needed to kind of set 
uh, you know, a core mission for myself that I aligned with so that I wasn't just given sporadically and, 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 you know, and so I've made those mistakes. I do feel bad. I give I have people from all over the world who I've known dating back to when I was three years old, literally who call me and ask me for money and I feel badly and I give them money and my wife doesn't love that necessarily. So it's, you know, it's interesting. My wife and I, our source of trauma and, and drama in our household used to be about spending money and saving money and, um, you know, and all this other stuff. And now fast forward 15 years and now it's about giving money away. That's, that's where the stress comes in. She doesn't love right. when someone comes out and says, Hey, Pete, I, I'm short on cash. Can you help? She's like, well, where was this person for the last 10 years? They're not your friend. Right. Right. And so that's been a really hard thing. I am still grappling with that every day because the anxiety of letting people down is a, is probably the biggest anxiety that I live with today. I don't like letting people down. Mm. Um, but how we've centered ourselves um, is through our foundation mm -hmm. and uh, coming up with a very uh, mission-driven thing. So then when people come to us, we can easily point to this and the woman who runs our foundation can point to it and she'd say, this is what we do. This is our core. We don't do this other stuff. Yeah. What we do at the Cadence Family Foundation is we ignite pathways out of poverty through quality access to education. Igniting pathways out of poverty mm -hmm. through quality access to education. Mm -hmm. I recited it because I created it and we memorized it. That's what we do. And so when people come to me for an ask for Alzheimer's, great cause, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not our cause. And right. I have to focus on things that, that right. I think I can make a real impact at scale. That's my best answer for you right now, but I am still developing as a human being on this front and still working on this. And it's hard. I so appreciate that. And I love that we can talk about this because this is something that I've also explored in my life. And it's really hard to do the digging around this, uh, the introspection around whatever actions I take. Is it coming from a healthy motive or a more unhealthy motive that might be coming from wounding of my past or my own sense of shame or embarrassment or whatever it could be. Um, and so I've had to do some of that work and, and I'm still, you know, discerning that in some of my choices, like, oh, is this decision or this relationship coming from which place inside me and which fuel source? So that's, that's where that question comes from. Cause it's something that I asked myself and I appreciate that you're even asking that that's incredible. Mm. Thank you. That's a hard question. It's a hard thing to deal with. And uh, again, no one's going to, no one's going to weep for me for the situation I'm in, but, um, but there are challenges associated with it. And it, it does wear on me, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Quick question about your, um, I've asked the, I've asked the, um, the listeners to ask questions from Facebook or, uh, YouTube or whatever it may be. So feel free to send your questions in now. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit about your, um, briefly, very briefly, you can reveal as much as you want. You have a family, of course, you briefly talked about your wife, which is amazing. And I, I can relate to that, um, that anxiety, I can relate to that um, pre 15 year during post situation as well. You have three, I'm sure, beautiful children at different ages. Um, what do you hope for them as a, as a parent? You know, I always tell my wife this. Um, and I, in, a, in, a, in a different way, I tell my kids this too. You know, I don't give a shit about your grades. I don't give a shit about your athletic prowess. What I give a shit about is how nice you are, how empathetic you are, how kind and, and kind of spirit and genuine of heart you are. Um, and I mean that because I say to my kids, you know, if I get a call from a teacher that you're struggling with math or you're not applying yourself, I, I might be a little bit upset. We'll, we'll work through it, though. Um, and, um, and we'll get to the bottom of it and I'll get you the help you need. If you do need help with your math. Um, 
But if I ever get a call that you're not courteous to a classmate, you're not kind, you're a bully, that's an invitation to be, you know, to be, to be moved out of this house, in my opinion. Mm. That is just totally unacceptable. Mm. Um, and, you know, as parents, we all have to draw the line. Mm-hmm. And that is my firm, you know, line with my mm-hmm. kids being not kind. And sometimes you suffer when you, when you're too kind, sometimes people take advantage of you. And I've seen that already with my kids and they're 10, eight and six, but that's our firm line. Um, and, uh, that makes me proud as a parent actually to know that I've never gotten a phone call, uh, about my kids being anything but kind or courteous. In fact, most of the times I get calls that they are in fact, overly kind and courteous. And as a, as a rich guy, probably one of the richer guys in my community, the fact that my kids are open arms and welcoming and not, you know, um, you know, don't seem put off by other people approaching them and they're very approachable. That makes me very, a very proud daddy. So, uh, you know, we're doing what we, you, you, as a parent, you know, it's trial and error. They do, you do the best you can. Uh, and so we're doing the best that we can with our kids, but we're prioritizing empathy and kindness uh, above everything else. Yeah. Beautiful. I love it. Beautiful. Yeah. I wish that was, that was more prevalent. Thank you for leading in that way. Uh, for the next generations also. We do have a few questions popping up on Facebook. So I want to ask you these. One is, first of all, just such an incredibly inspiring story. Thank you for everything you're doing. Um, This person on Facebook says, I've recently seen statistics about the massive good that can be accomplished in the world if the richest people just gave a tiny percentage of their wealth. What's your thoughts on your responsibility and other philanthropists in terms of courting greedy people away from the dark side, so to speak? Yeah. And how about, how about giving your wealth away while you're alive, not waiting until you're dead, mm-hmm. which yes. is, seems to be sort of this thesis that erupted over the past 15 years. I'm going to give half my wealth away. But when I die, <laughs> what, what's the fucking point of that? Don't you want to see the fruits of your labor when you're alive? Mm-hmm. See your impact today? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so look, the only way I can answer this is I lead by example. I put my money where my mouth is. I tell people not as a not as a uh, sort of badge of honor of how wealthy I am, but I will give away hundreds of millions of dollars in my lifetime. The minimum I will give away is $100 million in my lifetime. I'm about $40 million in and I'm 43 years old, right? So my guess is I'm gonna give away more than $100 million. Um, I'm worth, uh, you know, I'm pretty open about this. This is Straight Talk Live. I'm worth give or take, you know, plus or minus 5% depending on the day, call it $400 million, okay? Um, and, um, you know, so my goal is, is, and I, you know, that I have to pay taxes on that and, you know, I have illiquid investments and certain things, but, but my goal is, is can I give away 200 million? Can I give away 250? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so the only way I know to teach people is to show them and lead by example and talk about it. So they either feel ashamed or embarrassed or compelled to do the same thing I'm doing. Uh, so that's what I do. Mm. Love it. Um, yes. Once again, I love how much you lead by example and that's really the way to do it. Um, you put your money where your mouth is and your feet and your, your voting and your hands and all, all the things. Right. Um, a question from YouTube, uh, what's your one one on resilience, any cheat tips, uh, you have on becoming more resilient and dealing with setbacks? You know, um, I, I lived for many years, uh, by a famous Japanese proverb, uh, fall down seven times, stand up eight. And that was my guiding light as an entrepreneur. Like you don't have any choice. Yeah. I've won the war, but man, did I lose the battle many times along the way? You know, uh, those battles were hard. And, um, so, you know, if you, if you manifest your dream, 
I read the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill when I was 21, which is a book about seven first generation billionaires. And they're, 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 these people were a little bit obsessive compulsive too. So they weren't quite perfect, but they were so focused on manifesting their vision for themselves and nothing would obfuscate that vision. Nothing would stand in their way. Um, first of all, I'd say read the book Think and Grow Rich, uh, which is an incredible book. It's not about greed, although the title may, but it's about if you have a vision, you got to have a roadmap. You got to have directions. If you have a destination, you can't get there without this roadmap. You got to be committed to, you know, to that roadmap. And that's what I would say. It's just an overcommitment to believing something. If you first, if you don't believe you can achieve something, you, it will never happen. I always believe that this type of life would manifest for myself. Um, I believed it in my core. I said it to myself every day. I had a statement of riches on, um, in my nightstand, on my nightstand, in my desk drawer, and in my briefcase that I read several times a day. And it wasn't just about making money. It was also about giving money away, to be clear. But, um, but I believed it, and I read it, and I thought about it a lot. And then it happened for me. And that's how, you kind of, that's how when you're in the valley, when you're in the valley, you kind of can you know, pick yourself up and kind of get back to the trough. Get back yeah. to the peak, I should say. Sorry. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, we have another couple of, so someone asking us whether we can access this interview. Yes, of course. I think Rick, you answered that straight talk.live jump on the website. We have, uh, links, backlinks onto Spotify. This is a audio cast. It'll be, it will be the video as well. We replay it. We'll show it again, join our community and, and you'll see it for free. Uh, and then there is, um, uh, yeah, one more question that's come through, which is an interesting, maybe we'll close off with this and, and, uh, wish we had more time. Um, which is to do with, uh, yes, so classic question. So with everything you know now, um, in, in other words, with everything you know now and all of the experiences that you have, um, if you knew this 15 years ago, what would you have done differently, if at all? Um, you know, I try to say to people that I, 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 um, I, I, I don't live with re regrets. There's lots of things that happened um, that I wish would have happened differently, but mm -hmm. I don't live with regret because I got to this point in my life with, by experiencing all these different things. Yeah. Um, but you know, truth be told, um, I wish I had been a little less cutthroat, mm -hmm. um, in my ascent in my business ascent, you know, again, along my journey to create wealth, many people got slashed and burned. Many people got fired. Now, some of the people deserve to get fired, right? But, and you have to make those hard decisions as a business owner, but you know, some of them didn't. And some of it was, some of it was about my ascent and protecting myself and my privilege. And so they had to suffer. I, I wish I would have thought about that and thought about the duality of those issues a little bit differently on my, on my ascent to, to wealth and success in business. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's probably the biggest thing, Af. You know, I, um, and also I, I think I would have understood wealth differently. You know, like after you, you touched on it earlier, but there's there's the traditional form of wealth that all of us think about, which is, you know, bank account type of wealth. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other permutations of wealth that we don't often consider or talk about. And as I told you, Af, last time we talked, I found myself to be exceedingly wealthy in my bank account after I retired, but exceedingly relationship poor. And the notion that I was relationship poor, my relationship with my elderly parents was strained. My relationship with my wife and three kids was strained. My relationship with the friends I had grown up, you know, since three years old with was strained because I was absent for them. I wasn't there for them. Arguably, you can make an argument that I made all the sacrifices and that's what created my wealth. But still, 
did I have to kind of ignore them or avoid them in the process? Um, I'd like to believe that I didn't have to do that. And if I could go back and do something again, knowing what I know now, I'd say I try to better balance, although the word balance is a little bit of a bullshit mm-hmm. word, but I try to better, better balance um, my focus on relationship wealth and, fin- and financial wealth uh, if I had to do it again. Mm-hmm. Nice, nicely put. Thank you for, thank you for being open and honest about it because um, it's real. Right. And we, we all know that we, especially as entrepreneurs and business owners, we all know we do um, what we refer to as trade-offs and sometimes, you know, the story that I get from people who are, who've got a few more years of life experience to say, AF, you know, you got a family, spend as long as you can with the, the family, like really, you know, really spend quality time with your wife and your kids and the people you love. And it sounds all obvious, right? Like it's in a textbook and you know, Deepak Chopra stuff. But uh, in reality, it's as simple, actually it's as simple as that. It's as simple yeah. as that. It is. So um, what an amazing conversation, Rick, um, with Pete. And Pete, what a what a cool guy you are. Mm-hmm. And you. we love your humility. We love that you, you talk straight. We love that you're doing good things for the planet and you're not just, um, you know, marketing, um, the, the marketing aspects of what we see out there. And I think we will build a great friendship with you in whatever you end up doing in the future. We'd like to support it uh, personally and professionally and with STL, with Straight Talk Live. Um, you know, I'm deeply grateful. Thank you. Know. Feelings mutual, Laugh and Rick. Thank you so much for having me. I, you know, the ability to come on and have an authentic discussion mm-hmm. and to throw out a few F-bombs too. That was a lot of fun. So I really <laughs> That's fucking it. great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So Pete, no, thank you for your sincerity, your genuineness and Really quick, where can people find you and your work? Where should they go on social media and or any URL you want to throw out there? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. If people want to connect with me, I don't actually use any other form of, uh, of social media. Uh, learned that the hard way over the years. You're going to stay <laughs> up those other forms and uh, spend less time focusing on other people and more time focusing on my family and my impact on the world. Um, but uh, really on LinkedIn is the way. I don't have a, my family office doesn't have a website or anything, but uh um, uh, hope Toledo, hope dash Toledo.org and hope Chicago.org are my two big charitable endeavors. If people want to look us up there. Okay, great. And for all those out there, um, we'll be putting Pete on our speakers page. And so Pete, we'd love to get any of the links that you want us to promote for you on there as well. So they can go to straighttalk.live, And that's also where you can find any more information about Pete and the amazing work that he's up to. So Pete, thank you so much for being part of our straight talk live. And can't wait to see how we converge in the future here. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Okay. Be well, everyone.